the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment. Great to have you. Appreciate uh, you following us at danproftshow.com. Also on social media at danproftshow and at danproft. And uh, we begin on this program with the curious case of the National Museum of African American History and Culture promoting white supremacy. Yeah, you're hearing me right. Uh, in On their website, under the heading of whiteness, is uh, a bunch of content about white privilege and also these handy-dandy, easy-to-read charts, bullet-pointed for your comprehensive convenience, aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States. These are uh, bad things. Some of them actually are problematic, but... The question is, are they exclusively the province of white people in America? And to the extent that you argue that, are you not actually advancing a view of white supremacy? Let me give you the details. Aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States. Rugged individualism. The individual is the primary unit. Bullet point one, self-reliance, bullet point two, independence and autonomy are highly valued and rewarded. Bullet point three, individuals assumed to be in control of their environment, a you-get-what-you-deserve attitude. Uh, The desire to be independent and autonomous, that is solely the white person's perspective. So uh, the contrary position, the desire to be dependent is the province of non-white people. There's no, Black people don't desire to be, and, and other individuals of various races, don't desire to be independent, don't desire to con- try to control what they can control. Don't believe the individual as opposed to the community is the primary unit of analysis. Self-reliance is a four-letter word. Okay. Uh, Family structure, aspects of whiteness and white culture. The nuclear family. Father, mother, 2.3 children is the ideal social unit. Husband is the breadwinner and head of the household. Wife is homemaker, subordinate to the husband. Children should have their own rooms, be independent. First of all, (laughs) the nuclear family as the uh, ideal social unit, that also is solely the province of white people, if only. And I don't mean solely, if only it was the province of all people, based on what we know about the Pandora's box of societal ills you open up with the 
illegitimacy rates in all communities by race in this country, white, black, Latino. You know, half of children in the country are born out of wedlock. That's good news because we're moving away from the aspects and assumptions of white culture, which is promotion of the nuclear family. Who thinks it's good news that the uh, out of birth wedlock, uh, out of wedlock births in the white community is north of 40 percent anymore that it's good news that it's uh, north of 60 percent for Latinos, north of 70 percent for black Americans. That's there's no good news to be had in any of those statistics. And there is good news to be had. For the kids. Black, Latino, white, Asian, where you have the family intact. Also, a wife is a homemaker subordinate to the husband. You know any uh, two-income uh, households in the white culture in America? I mean, this this would be laughable if it weren't serious. Here's another aspect and assumption of white culture. Objective and rational linear thinking. Objective thinking as opposed to emotive thinking. Emotive thinking, I guess, is the province of of minorities and objective thinking being clear headed is that's whiteness. Uh, listening to this, tell me again that this is not promotion of the idea of white supremacy. Uh, Protestant work ethic. Hard work is the key to success. Work before you play. If you didn't meet your goals, you didn't work hard enough. Again, um, Max Weber, uh, Protestant, the spirit of capitalism and the Protestant ethic. I, I'm Catholic. I'm not Protestant, but I don't know. I, I subscribe to those those views. I, I know I'm Protestant, white, Catholic, white, so it's a white, black, Latino, Asian, etc. thing, not a, a religious persuasion thing. Hard work is the key to success. No black people believe that. That's not part of black culture. And it shouldn't be. What I, I'm I'm sort of mystified. Um, also, some things that are negative, but don't the negative things also transcend race? Your wealth is equal to your worth. Your job is who you are. Respect authority. Heavy value on ownership of goods, space, and property. The, so the wealth equals your your worth as a human being. That's a negative. Your job is who you are. That's a negative. Respect authority, uh, value, ownership of goods, space, and property. I mean, don't you want people to participate in the ownership society? On the one hand, the argument is there is a dearth of opportunities for minorities in America. On the other hand, the idea that you would want to acquire anything is part of white culture and is to be rejected. It's all very confusing, isn't it? And it just gets worse from there. Uh, this is po- I, I, I just have to say again for emphasis, this is posted on the National Museum of African American History and Culture's website. And then they have more bilge about uh, white privilege. Being white doesn't mean you haven't experienced hardships or oppression. Being white does mean you have not faced hardships or oppression based on the color of your skin. 
How about the guy we talked about uh, yesterday uh, in California, the San Francisco art curator, uh, who was uh, pressured to resign after saying that he would continue to display the art of credible, qualified uh, white artists. How is that not facing hardship based on the color of your skin when the sta- that statement was taken as an affront by others in the art community, that gallery that pressured him to resign? Going back to the museum's website, White Privilege, unpacking the invisible knapsack. Oh, brother. Scholar, and I use that in quotations, Peggy McIntosh writes, White privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, codebooks, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. What a uh, dizzying simile from this scholar, quote-unquote. Really what she is is a race-hustling consultant who, uh, much like Robin DiAngelo, the author of White Fragility, and we'll get to her in a second. These are sort of... um, uh, well, racist consultants who make a living and a pretty good one cowering school districts and corporations into bringing them in to do the whole you're hopelessly racist. You always will be. All you can do to try and do is uh, explore your racism and try to minimize it. And so you'll forever need us in your employ to make sure that you're asking the right questions, checking the right boxes and engaging in the proper conduct best you can as a hopelessly racist white person. Peggy McIntosh is one of those. Mm -hmm. So she'll probably be coming to a school district near you very soon if she already hasn't, or someone like her will be, Robin D'Angelo, the uh, advice columnist who uh, John McWhorter has a uh, author, really, a great uh, piece in the Atlantic on uh, calling it a racist tract. Despite the sincere intentions of its author, Robin D'Angelo, the book diminishes black people in the name of dignifying them. Diminishes black people in the name of dignifying them. A book that d- diminishes black people, racist tract. That's John McWhorter, African-American scholar, linguistics, Columbia University. Oh, by, so, by the way, also a signatory on that Harper's cancel culture letter that we talked about earlier in the week that was mainly leftist, but then it included uh, screeds against President Trump and unnamed members of the right. So McWhorter's tough to pin down, but not on this matter. He's not, is he? When we come back, I want to unpack Peggy McIntosh's knapsack and uh, also review John McWhorter's review of Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility bestseller, because that's also going to be part of your kids' curriculum if and when they ever come back to school. More right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back and continuing our conversation about uh, whiteness as uh, so distilled for us by the African-American, uh, National African-American History and Cultural Museum. I mean, just incredible uh, 
patronizing of, of black Americans by a museum that's supposed to honor their history and culture. It's remarkable, the uh, contradictions here. Uh, and I wanted to uh, go back to go back to it for just a minute. A couple of matters. One is this uh, white privilege, the uh, markings of white privilege in practice. Again, this is on the website. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. I can avoid exp- uh, spending time with people with whom I was trained to mistrust and who have learned to mistrust my kind or me. <laughs> the premises in that statement that uh, go unchallenged. Okay. If I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing. Renting or purchasing housing in an area where I can afford and in which I would want to live because there's no poor people in places, poor white people in places that they would prefer not to live. Okay. I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. White privilege. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured I will not be followed or harassed. I can turn on the television or open the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. When I'm told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown that people of my color made it what it is. I can be sure that my children will be given curricular materials that testify to the existence of their race. Right, because we have suppressed, I don't know, say, for the last 40 or 50 years, any notion of teaching children about uh, the great black Americans of American history. Or the important uh, contributions from black Americans or the important stories uh, inspiring or tragic of black Americans. I mean, it's just utter nonsense. I can be pretty sure of having my voice heard in a group in which I am the only member of my race. Sure. I'll tell you what. I uh, bust into a barbershop on the south side of Chicago, black barbershop on the south side of Chicago, and I say, hey, hey, everybody, quiet down. The white guy's here, and I got something to say. That's how it works in real life. This is a joke. It's an absolute joke. It's an embarrassment. And here again, we're talking about not some tract on some BLM blog. We're talking about a cultural institution in America. A cultural institution, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. And this is what they're profiling on their site. Scholarship question in quotation marks. And yes, scare quotes like. I was discussing prior to the break, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, bestseller, intellectual fraud. And you have to believe me. Uh, let's dig into John McWhorter's piece in The Atlantic that I described before the break. Despite the sincere intentions of its author, that's generous, the book diminishes black people in the name of dignifying us. The book is pernicious because of the authority that its author has been granted over the way innocent readers think. D'Angelo has spent a very long time conducting diversity seminars in which whites exposed to her catechism regularly tell her, many while crying, yelling, or storming toward the exit, that she's insulting them and being reductionist. Yet none of this seems to have led her to look inward. Rather, she sees herself as the bearer of an exalted wisdom that these objectors fail to perceive, blinded by their inner racism. D'Angelo is less a coach than a proselytizer. Uh, I'd say she's less a coach or a proselytizer than she is a huckster. Right? The, the, the classic Kafka trap 
that's central to her thesis, which is you're racist, wired in your DNA. Denying you're racist is evidence of your racism. And uh, as McCorder notes in his piece, we will all white people will die racist, just like we will all die sinners. Uh, he goes through her book with some precision, as you would expect from an academic of McCorder's quality. D'Angelo's depiction of white psychology shapeshifts according to what her dogma requires. More evidence of the huckster, the intellectual fraud. On the one hand, she argues in chapter one that white people do not see themselves in racial terms. Therefore, they must be taught by experts like her of their whiteness. Using the uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture as some source material, I'm sure. But for individuals who harbor so little sense of themselves as a group, McWhorter notes, the white people with whom uh, D'Angelo describes are oddly tribalist when it comes when it suits her narrative. White solidarity, she writes in Chapter 4, requires both silence about anything that exposes the advantage, advantages of the white population and tacit agreement to remain racially united in the protection of white supremacy. So McCorder juxtaposes her contentions in Chapter 1 versus Chapter 4 and asks the appropriate question, if these people don't even know whiteness is a category, just what are they suddenly defending? I mean, do you see solidarity among white people and defending the so-called privileges of whiteness? Hardly. D'Angelo, McWhorter goes on, also writes as if certain shibboleths of the black left, for instance, that all disparities between white and black are due to racism, represent the incontestable truth. This ideological bias is hardly unique, and a reader could look past it along with the other lapses in argumentation I've noted if she offered some kind of higher wisdom. The problem is that white fragility is the prayer book for what can only be described as a cult. And I say again, uh, dismiss this as you want, uh, relegate this to some you know, spat between academics that has no particular relevance to you. I'm telling you, the Robin D'Angelo's and the Peggy McIntoshes are coming to a corporate uh, retreat near you coming to, and their scholarship, a school district near your kids. The real problem with white fragility, concludes McWhorter. One might ask just how a people can be poised for making change when they've been taught that pretty much anything they say or think is racist and thus antithetical to the good. What end does, this, what end does all this self-mortification serve? Impatient with such questions, D'Angelo insists that wanting to jump over the hard personal work to get to solutions, in quotation marks, is a foundation of white fragility, another Kafka trap. In other words, for D'Angelo, the whole point is the suffering. And note the scare quotes around solutions as if wanting such a thing were somehow ridiculous. In 2020, as opposed to 1920, I neither need nor want anyone to muse on how whiteness privileges them over me, nor do I need wider society to undergo teachings in how to be exquisitely sensitive about my feelings. I see no connection between D'Angelo's brand of re-education and vigorous constructive activism in the real world on social issues on issues of import to the black community. And I cannot imagine that any black readers could willingly submit themselves to Angelo's, D'Angelo's ideas while considering themselves adults of ordinary self-regard and strength. Few books about race have more openly infantilized black people than this supposedly authoritative tome. A stunning indictment and spot-on indictment of 
a book that is number one on the Amazon bestsellers list, and I am saying is going to be part of corporate and K-12 through curriculum if people don't stand up and add their voices to John McWhorter's. This is Dan Brown. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back. We're asking the question, why are cases spiking in particular states around the country, including California? But perhaps the question we should be asking is, why are people surprised that the cases are spiking in some states, as was completely anticipated, the anticipation documented, in fact. For more on perhaps that second question, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Jeff Barkey, who is a primary care physician in Orange County, CA. Dr. Barkey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Good morning, Chicago. You're seeing case spikes in Orange County. Um, Why is that? And does it come as a surprise to you? Uh, It's no surprise to me, you know, California was relatively spared early on, as were other states like Arizona. So as we open up the economy, there's no surprise that we're seeing increase in uh, in cases. Remember, California was also locked down pretty strictly. So we had very low cases. We were locked down and now we're going about our business. So we would expect to see the number of cases increase. But it makes for great headlines to make that as if it's a surprise and that we should be uh, fearful or scared of it. Uh, is there a concern about uh, the healthcare infrastructure in Orange County being overwhelmed by the increase in cases? No, there's really not. Uh, the healthcare infrastructure here is doing just fine. And of course, with increased cases, we are going to see more hospitalizations. The good news is we are much better at treating this virus than we were just a few months ago. So the length of hospitalization has decreased. The number of patients that enter the hospital and then ultimately enter the ICU has decreased as well. Um, so once again, this is expected. It should not be feared. But that being said, yes, this is a very deadly virus, and those that are most vulnerable need to be protected. And, and uh, dexamethasone, does that come into play? It does. So dexamethasone, there was a study out not long ago that showed dexamethasone reduces hospitalization uh, um, rates and reduces the chances of somebody dying. It's that, that drug is more used in the inpatient critical care setting, uh, but Almost any type of steroid to use, be it prednisone, a Medrol dose pack, hospitalization with uh, dexamethasone, or now the inhaled budesonide, uh, make a difference with the cytokine storm, the inflammatory reaction that the body has uh, to this virus. I think after this conversation, I'm ready to take the boards. So, uh, so doctor, let, let me ask you something. Based on what you were saying, you're describing the reality on the ground in Orange County. Um, that that does not square with um, either the rhetoric or the decisions that have been made by Governor Newsom to enter California into a second shutdown, does it? 
Yeah, well, my governor's worse than your governor. So, okay. so uh, it's a uh, bit of a personal privilege thing. We like to make sure we have the worst governor in the country. But all right, go ahead. <laughs> make your case. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I don't believe there's any need to reshut down our economy. It didn't work the first time around, and why would we expect it to work the second time? What a healthy society does is the following. We protect the most vulnerable. We know who's at risk for this, and that's the elderly and those with significant pre-existing conditions. So we protect the most vulnerable, those that get ill, we isolate, and the rest of us we allow to go about our business with maximum liberty with common sense precautions. So this nonsense that we should stop church gatherings again while in our state my governor's worse than your governor marijuana dispensaries remain open liquor stores remain open while we're not allowed to worship go to church or uh, or gather in a restaurant as if that's the reason why this virus is spreading there's a study out of germany uh that looked at reopening of schools they uh they uh, assessed over 2,000 uh, students and teachers out of 13 different schools and they showed that children really aren't this uh, major spreader of the virus and children don't spread the virus from themselves to a teacher. I heard somebody say recently that Orange County is the Sweden of California. Uh, we're, we're, we're happy to be that. What, what about your colleagues, uh, whether in Orange County or around the state or even around the country, your, your medical colleagues? Uh, what's sort of the prevailing opinion within your professional cohort, those you have professional relationships with, about the handling of this and about the, the coverage of the handling of this as you uh, look at locality to locality, state to state? Well, I think it's varied, but uh, physicians in general aren't ones that want to speak out and be public about this. So many of my colleagues are just kind of being quiet, going about their business. Uh, they don't want to really get involved in the, in the political aspect of this virus. But I think many of them agree that uh, this, our reaction to this virus is too much being driven by fear and not enough being driven by just some common sense things that we can do. He is Dr. Jeff Barkey, primary care physician in Orange County. Dr. Barkey, thanks so much for your time and insights. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's a shame the way you mess around with your man. It's a shame the way you hurt me. It's a shame the way you mess around this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, following our conversation from uh, Dr. Barkey, uh, with Dr. Barkey from uh, Orange County, that is, this uh, rather uh, direct testimony both senses of the word, from Mark McDonald, who's a psychiatrist who specializes in children and at-risk youth. This was before a June 24th hearing of the Orange County, California Board of Supervisors. It was on the issue of school reopenings. Uh, so consistent with uh, Dr. Barkey, um, Mark McDonald laid it out to the Board of Supervisors thusly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Children are not dying from COVID-19. Children are not passing the disease on to adults. So the only question is, why are we even having this meeting tonight? We're meeting because we adults are afraid. We're meeting because we adults are afraid. Remember, in uh, 
L.A. and San Diego to uh, school districts. The school districts there that shut down will do uh, remote learning only. There have been zero, zero COVID-19 deaths for persons under the age of 17. Zero. Why are we ha- even having this meeting tonight? We're meeting because we adults are afraid. Mr. McDonald goes on. As parents, we will face many moments of anxiety seeing our children off on their first day of kindergarten, their first day of camp, their first year of college. We may want to keep them home to protect them from the world, which can indeed be a frightening place. But let's be clear. When we do that, we are not really protecting our children. We are only attempting to manage our own anxiety, and we do that at their expense. We are acting as negligent parents. We are harming our children. We are failing them. Trying to prepare the road for your child rather than your child for the road. That uh, dichotomy we talked about previously on this show. McDonald uh, concludes, we must agree to make decisions in the best interests of the children. If we do not, if paralyzed by fear, we continue to act purely out of self-interest, we will ensure an entire generation of traumatized young adults consigned to perpetual adolescence and residency in their parents' garages, unable to move through life with independence, courage, and confidence. They deserve better. We owe it to them as parents. Wow. Hmm? That's unvarnished, isn't it? And wholly accurate, based on everything we know. Uh, Per our discussion with Alex Barazow, the microbiologist, on the show yesterday to have the discussion of whether or not to open schools is insane. The words he used is insane. The only discussion should be how, how do we get kids back to school? How are we going to do this? We're going to do it. How are we going to do it? But that is not the discussion that is happening in big urban centers around the country, at least, but not limited. And uh, what do you get from the teachers' unions? We mentioned it before, but it bears repeating. I mean, the the L.A. teachers' union, which shut it down, CPS teachers' union, Chicago Public Schools, they don't want to go back. New York City uh, teachers' union squawking even about uh, de Blasio's uh, confusing and limited reopening. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show with Libby Emmons from the Post Millennial. Uh, this editorial in the Wall Street Journal about the L.A. LA public, uh, the L.A. Teachers Union, their demands to go back. Here, you know, this is the way you ensure that you will not go back. You make unrealistic demands and say, oh, we would have gone back, but uh, this is an opportunity for change. I mean, isn't that what Gavin Newsom said? Months back, we played it on this show. Gavin Newsom, in in the wake of this sort of catastrophe, there's real opportunity to do paradigm shift. And the paradigm shift that Gavin Newsom and the L.A. Teachers Union and teachers unions around the country want to affect is move to an even more adult-centered education system. And, oh, by the way, bigger government at every level in every sector. Because, of course, these are the neo-Marxists pushing the same agenda that's being pushed by the Socialist Spice Girls in the House. So to the L.A. Teachers Union, 
What do they want from Washington? A federal bailout, half a trillion dollars this year for K through 12 schools and state and local governments. The uh, first disaster relief bill gave 30 billion. They want 500 billion, of course. They also want Medicare for all to combat the quote boundless greed of the for-profit health industry unquote. That's what they want from D.C. This is just to go back to work. Uh, From California, they demand the state's, quote, record number of millionaires and billionaires finally pay their fair share. And, of course, put that money towards education, read salaries and benefits. It stipulates support for a fall ballot initiative that would increase commercial and industrial property taxes in California, wants a new wealth tax on the capital gains of billionaires, and a 1% to 3% surtax on Californians making more than a million annually. Californians making more than a million annually also already pay the highest state income tax rate in the country, which is 13.3%. Not enough. Not fair share. What does this have to do with educating kids, you ask? Great question. Of local officials. So you got your your uh, your bill of particulars for D.C. You got your bill of particulars for California. Now for the local officials of what do you what do you think? The union demands they defund the police and reorient that money to education, read salaries and benefits. And naturally, they want a moratorium on privately operated, publicly funded charter schools. Close my competition. <laughs> The Wall Street Journal concludes generously, I would say, in response to this manifesto, the public sector unions have moved very far left. Well, that's the whole debate in this country, all of our institutions, far left or ultra far left. Pretty narrow parameters. Uh, Wall Street Journal of the unions, teachers unions in this case, but public sector unions generally. They're still a self-serving guild, but they're also a political vanguard for left-wing ideological causes, should be ultra-left-wing. Show them the money or students can stay home and lose another year of learning. Give me what I demand or the kids get it. And these are our heroes, right? This is Dan Proff. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back, uh, Mayor Warren Wilhelm. Uh, you may know him as Bill de Blasio. He's the mayor of New York City uh, from the Sandinistan Party. Had a uh, presser to talk about... Uh, what glorious work the city is doing in emptying out its jails, as if that's a difficult thing to do. Uh, the question is, is it a productive thing to do? Well, here's what uh, Bill de Blasio was bragging about. We now have fewer people in our jails than any time since World War II, and we are safer for it and better for it. Uh, that would have been a fine metric uh, if you if that's the way you want to measure uh, accomplishment. Until he said we're safer for it, because you see, uh, well, this headline from New York, NBC4, NBC4 New York, January, uh, July 1 of this year. So, you know, two weeks ago, New York City homicides soared 21 percent in the first six months of 2020. Shootings are up 46 percent, but they're at the lowest. This is the Fox Butterfield effect, but they're at the lowest <laughs> prison population since World War II. God, could you connect the dots for me, given what we know about recidivist uh, recidivism, particularly among violent offenders. Hmm. 
Hooray! Lowest level since of uh, per persons in prison since World War II, and we're safer for it, except homicides are up 21% and shootings are up 46%. By the way, the same culture uh, persists in other big cities, including my hometown of Chicago. Do you think the New York numbers are bad? The uh, increases in homicides and shootings? Shootings, uh, shooting victims now 636 as of the end of June 30. You know what the number of shootings in Chicago was during the same period, first six months of this year? Also up uh, substantially year over year. 1,800-plus shootings. Uh, Chicago has one-third the population of New York, three times the number of shootings, and more than double the number of murders in the first six months of 2020. That's how bad it is in Chicago with Mayor Lori Lightfoot and also and the same non-prosecution culture, empty-out-the-jails approach to public safety that Bill de Blasio is taking. But, hey, uh, Berkeley, California is tip of the spear. Uh, once you empty out the jails uh, then and you defund the police, then you backfill them. You move particular tasks off of the police's docket, making it easier to fund, to defund them, I should say. And uh, you just turn it over to, uh, you know, social workers and other city workers. Berkeley, California, believed to be the first in the nation, uh, the city council there, after setting a goal of cutting the police budget by 50%, is helping to achieve that uh, goal by eliminating police responsibility for traffic stops, instead using other city workers to conduct traffic stops, unarmed civilian city workers. Yeah. So um, we'll be watching Berkeley, California, and how those traffic stops work with the unarmed civilian city workers pulling you over for whatever reason, how that interplay works when you don't actually have the threat of law enforcement in a traffic stop setting, as we know from police officers, that along with domestic disturbance calls, the most dangerous position a police officer puts himself or herself in. But it's remarkable stuff. The Fox Butterfield effect in New York and uh, the complete loss of sanity in a place that it has long since disappeared in Berkeley. But going down, this is Dan Brock. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back, and uh, today, 1.3 million first-time unemployment filers. That's uh, north of 50 million in the last 14 weeks, 17, uh, 17 weeks, I should say, 17 weeks straight of seven-figure first-time unemployment filers. Uh, and I think the uh, number I heard was about 17 million people un unemployed, you know, first-time unemployment filers, not necessarily still unemployment filers, but 17 million. Uh, I would do, you've got double-digit unemployment nationally, and uh, it's perhaps not as bad as some people expected it to be so far, in part because of the, uh, the, the stock market's uh, performance with Fed backing. But it is still very dangerous economic territory and particularly uh, made particularly more precarious by this uh, 
second wave, not of the virus, but of shutdowns with a second wave in the fall of the virus still likely pending. What is to emerge out of all of this in the short term and the medium term to help us uh, prognosticate? We're pleased to be joined again by Rich Carlgaard, who's the publisher of Forbes magazine, best-selling author of Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Rich, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure to be on your show, Dan. So how do you uh, look back at the last 17 weeks and, and you know, take uh, in some of the macro numbers and assess how much uh, damage we've done to ourselves and, and how much uh, damage uh, is yet to come? Well, we've done a heck of a lot of damage. I mean, so far, I think you can say that if you go to January 2020 and you look at total economic output in the United States, it'll take us 18 months to two years to get back to that point. Um, that and that mean that that depends on not um, shutting down excessively. It depends on uh, letting this virus run its course. Where we have all these new infections, but the death rates in most states are going down. But as you and I know, trusting politicians to do the rational thing is not always a good bet. But I think that you can see five trends emerging that you would be willing to they are are not going away. And one of them is the extraordinary rate of technology acceleration. Here where I live in Silicon Valley, you know, Forbes is based in New York, but I've lived my whole career at Forbes for 28 years out here in Silicon Valley. And the biggest story from my perspective heading into the year was the acceleration of digital evolution, the cloud, edge computing, 5G, AI, all coming together to create this new infrastructure of computation and communication that was accelerating the rate at which technology was rolling out through business and society. And one of the surprises about the COVID slowdown is that if anybody thought the COVID slowdown would also slow down the rate of technology acceleration through businesses, they were mistaken. The evidence is clear that companies are keeping their put to the floor on adopting technology because they have to. They have to become more agile. They have to look at their cost structures with a fine eye. They have to be able to adapt to surprises almost every day in the marketplace and global supply chains and everything else. And, 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 and perhaps, perhaps they'd like to rely a little bit less on their human employees. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's sort of the, that trend, I think, was happening anyway. It's just now that it's happening so fast, and it's going to be very disruptive. But you see it reflected in the stock market. The stock market is up primarily because of big tech. It's up because of Microsoft, Amazon. Don't forget that Amazon Web Services is the profit engine at Amazon. It's up. We're up at Apple, and we're up at a whole lot of companies that maybe people who don't follow technology or follow the stock market closely may not be aware of companies like ServiceNow, CrowdStrike. I mean, these cloud-based enterprise software models are are, are accelerating, and um, you see it reflected in the stock price. So I think that we can say that technology's acceleration is a given, whether the economy is slow, whether it's medium, or whether it fully recovers. And I think you can also see that the stock market is looking past the worst. I've always thought that the greatest supercomputer in the world was collectively the stock market because you have millions of really bright people with great computational 
weapons at their disposal trying to figure out what's going on in the economy. And so the stock market is making a more optimistic bet than our public officials, than certainly are the pandemic porn wing of the media, which seems to be most of the media these days. Yeah. Well, uh, all that new time in front of screens, including for uh, kids uh, that are not going back to school uh, in the classroom setting. So many right now, it looks to it looks to be will uh, evolve even faster too as an actual species into looking like uh, one of those M Night Shyamalan monsters uh, out on the hustings in this dystopian America, where you're just sort of uh, uh, you, you evolve to be a screen creature. I think is what's going to happen as well. So that should be interesting. Well, you know, and as you put it, it's not all that pleasant, but uh, but it is what it is. You can't stop technology from rolling out. It used to be that a principle called Moore's Law was the governing factor of the pace of technology evolution. That was how fast you could evolve semiconductors. And right. there was a formula, Moore's Law, that predicted, you know, that, that you get a doubling of transistors on a chip every two years or so. But Moore's Law has been superseded by the by the collection of the cloud, AI, 5G, and all these technologies converging at once. So the smartest people I talk to in the Valley say the technology evolution is now stepped up by a factor of two to three X, and that will have um, profound effects in business and it'll have profound effects in our society. And um, like it or not, it's coming. And this is why we need such reform in schools and so many other institutions is to get people ready for this. And, and um, yes. accompanying uh, that uh, technological innovation, you argue that one of the other business trends coming out of this, a positive one, much more, I think, unequivocally positive one, is that entrepreneurship will accelerate. Why do you believe that? Well, it'll accelerate because it has to. We're going to move into a period of survival entrepreneurship. Survival entrepreneurship, every, every immigrant who comes here with only a few dollars in their pocket knows what that's all about. But when you look at the devastation to to employment for people in their 20s, when you look at the devastation that these uh, overwrought shutdowns have brought to small businesses, people are going to have to reinvent themselves. People are going to have to figure out a way to to find what they can do and build some income stream around it. And that's kind of different than this uh, form of entrepreneurship that has lately become popular, which is the highly educated person with the slick PowerPoint going out and raising money from venture capital. You know, that's just a tiny slice of entrepreneurship. It gets the headlines. But we're going back to, you know, the 1970s were a pretty lousy decade. The stock market fell 45 percent peak to trough. Uh, President Nixon, Vice President Agnew resigned. You had gasoline prices going up by 4x. And yet out of that pretty crummy economic decade were born companies like Apple, Microsoft, Oracle, Charles Schwab, and FedEx. Uh, well, and, 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 and to your point about the survival entrepreneurship, I mean, there are going to be so many entrepreneurs who essentially had their business taken away from them by the government, uh, even with the temporary liquidity through the PPP program and the like. And so, you know, what does the restaurateur, what does uh, the small business owner operator do other than know what he or she knows how to do, which is to uh, put together a business plan, uh, identify a problem that needs that he think he or she thinks they have a solution to, and uh, to make a go of it, right? Well, they're going to have to, not because they want to, but because they're going to have to, and it's going to be tough. And it's not it's not something anybody in that position would have chosen. But I do think that we'll see a new wave of entrepreneurship. People are going to have to reinvent themselves. If their business is run aground by these foolish shutdowns, they're going to have to reinvent themselves. 
young people um, who find that their that their liberal arts college degree that costs them a quarter of a million dollars and nobody wants to hire them are either going to go you know become permanent whiners for the rest of their lives or they're going to have to wake up and reinvent themselves too and make themselves valuable in an economy so i believe that will happen it will be painful birthing process uh it's going to be an ugly transition but i think we will look back and we'll see that the people who were capable of reinventing themselves wound up in a pretty good spot he is rich Carlgard, publisher of forbes magazine best-selling author of late bloomers the power of patience in a world obsessed with early achievement which is a a great read rich thanks as always for joining us appreciate it uh, thank you, Dan. And as, uh, as great an asset as you are to the country with your radio show, I, I feel like we need you in a governor's seat somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that, that Dan needs to move southeast or southwest, too, I think. But uh, yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. My good friend Doug Burgum, who's the governor of North Dakota, has invited me to speak to the Western Governors Association in in a month um, where um, it's in North Dakota. So that means they'll probably still have a live event. So I may be tapping you for ideas on what I should talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, let me know. Happy to communicate on it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Dan. Take care, Rich. Appreciate it. All right. Yeah, bye. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back. Can't stop at the Redskins. Go ahead, ban the Redskins, as Dan Henninger argues in the journal. Can't stop there. Van Henninger is uh, is really, really a good writer, and uh, this is some of his uh, uh, most uh, sarcastic and best work. Oh, yes, ban the Redskins. You knew the Redskins were done as soon as Dreyer's Grand Ice Cream said it was dropping Eskimo pie so the company could be, quote, part of the solution on racial equality, unquote. When I was growing up, Eskimo pie always made me think Eskimos were great. But what did I know? Yeah. What do you know? Uh, Henninger notes that he's been fighting Team Namors for years, most recently over the uh, suppression of the Cleveland Indians Chief Wahoo mascot, you know, the uh, Cleveland Indians. You think they're going to survive? I doubt it. Chicago Blackhawks, probably not, despite their protestations to the contrary. But there's many, many more nicknames to fall, and Henninger goes through them. Some, perhaps, you hadn't thought of, but you better start thinking about them as uh, the public is uh, weighing in on the new Washington football team's name. Dan Henninger has a suggestion, too, I'll get to. Got to get rid of of the low-hanging fruit. The Chicago White Sox, my favorite team. White Sox, really? The Boston Red Sox, the Cleveland Browns, white, red, brown, and black are unspeakable and unthinkable colors now for anything. The Chicago Green Sox, maybe. Many pro athletes are weirdly attracted to the color pink, so the Boston Pink Sox would work. (laughs) Probably not to Red Sox Nation, but that's okay. Clevelanders will object that even if most people under 20 years old think the Cleveland Browns offends the race gods, the Browns are actually named after the team founder, Paul Brown, of course, Uh, but he was a white guy. And as Henninger notes, Riley, you can abolish, why don't you just abolish the Cleveland Browns altogether? Who would notice? Ouch. Sorry, Cleveland. 
ever since the drive. Saying, uh, hey, hey, goodbye, writes Henninger, to any team whose name suggests centuries of systemic privilege. You hadn't thought about that, had you? You hadn't thought about your Kansas City Royals, your L.A. Kings, your Sacramento Kings, your Vegas Golden Knights, and Cleveland Cavaliers. Boy, Cleveland taking a pounding. And hasn't the moment come for LeBron James to renounce his nickname, King James? You know, connotes privilege. The highest value in modern American life is feeling safe. Not safe in the sense of not being gunned down tomorrow night. I mean safe the way a college student or street protester feels unsafe if bad thoughts are brought to mind. And thus the nickname Purge. Uh, Well, I should put it a different way. The aspect of the Purge, which is more comprehensive than nicknames and statues, the aspect of the Purge that focuses on nicknames. Other... Uh, counterintuitive nicknames that have to be changed. The Denver Broncos. Broncos are abused horses forced to buck and then submit by a Dallas Cowboy kicking them with San Antonio Spurs. Got to dump them all. (laughs) Great. You think that's good? What about the teams that are dependent on fossil fuels? The Detroit Pistons, the Edmonton Oilers, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Pittsburgh windmills, maybe. Steelers? Come now. In the era of the onset of the Green New Deal? Doesn't seem appropriate, does it? The Philadelphia 76ers? Excuse me, per Nicole Hannah-Jones and the other race hustlers, that would have to be the Philadelphia 1619s, wouldn't it? The Miami Marlins shamelessly expropriated the name of a vulnerable species. They should be renamed the Miami Minnows, argues Henninger. Names associated with religious beliefs. Did you think about those? Have you considered those? The New Jersey Devils. Well, the clear implication is that God exists, and we know from Nietzsche God's dead. The Devil's got to go. The New Orleans Saints, obvious. The Boston Celtics evoke Irish Catholics. Gone. The Portland Trailblazers. Even for such an enlightened city as Antifa, Oregon, the Portland Trailblazers... You're celebrating genocidal pioneers. The 49ers in San Fran, another bastion of deep thinkers. They're named after 19th century California gold diggers who did what? Raped the environment. The Houston Rockets have an impossibly male-sounding name, should compensate by becoming the Houston Rockettes. The Rockettes play better defense than James Harden, that's for sure. The Colorado Avalanche evokes death. Can't have that. New York Rangers sound like the police. The Texas Rangers are the police. What were the San Diego Padres thinking? Chicago Bulls. Another team named after an abused animal. Not to mention the consumption of animal protein. That's verboten. Uh, Henninger, uh, (laughs) this is a bit of a reach, but hey, these are the times. Henninger, a new name that comes to mind is the Chicago Jordans in honor of, obviously, Michael. But that will remind some people of the Jordan River and the plight of the Palestinians. So that could be too too hurtful, create too much unsafety. Don't get me started on teams who think they're safe by hiding behind the names of birds or animals. Toronto Blue Jays are named after a nasty bird. The Hawks will kill rabbits. Gone are the Atlanta Hawks. Just the words Miami Dolphins make me want to cry. 
One name that uh, may provide some guidance for other nicknames, a nickname that can stay, the Miami Heat, that invokes the problem of climate change, and we can't be reminded of that too often. Maybe the Cleveland Indians could become the Cleveland Cold. The Cleveland Lake is on fire. Even though I know it's apocryphal. The uh, team name of the Utah Jazz never made sense to me, but it does suggest that rebranding teams as musical instruments might also be saved. Now, to the contrary, sorry, Red Sox Nation, or Pink Sox Nation, that you're soon to be. The New England Patriots? Patriotism? Come on. How about the New England trombones? Sure. Uh, or something else from the um, uh, Boston Pops, you know, a, f- a favorite uh, uh, a favorite I- I minority member of the Boston Pops and whatever instrument that person plays, whether from the brass or the woodwind. Uh, for now, Washington sits with a nameless football team. How about uh, calling the team in the nation's capital the Washington Nothings? That sounds like something we could all agree on. Nothing. Excellent work by uh, our friend Dan Henninger over at the Wall Street Journal. Nothing like demonstrating the rank absurdity of it all by doing the left one better. And that is a difficult chore to be more absurd than the ultra or the, the, the radical left or the ultra radical left, the crypto. Crypto left. I like that. Crypto conservative, crypto leftist. That's what uh, we're talking about here. And Dan Henninger has nicely skewered them. Although with the Washington Redskins, boy, Dan Snyder, I know he uh, is in the center of some uh, ruminations uh, controversy. But uh, if he really wanted to stick it to a FedEx and all the pressure that was brought to bear, not that it wouldn't continue to be. Uh, the, the meme I like better than the Washington foreskins I've seen circulating, the Washington orange skins with Donald Trump as your mascot on your helmet. Wouldn't that be fun? I the guy, why you so fly? He said, funky, comedina. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back. And uh, President Trump has interceded with the competing, well, op-eds, one on behalf of Tony Fauci, one in response to that characterization of Tony Fauci in USA Today to say uh, the war of words needs to be tamped down. We're all on the same team, uh, basically saying in not so many words that uh, this is stuff that shouldn't be battled out in public. It's not helpful to a presentation to the American people of a cohesive unit that is uh, operating efficiently under the direction of the president of the United States. And it started with the USA Today op-ed in which, in pertinent part, those uh, enlightened folks wrote, Fauci is a national treasure. (laughs) Very measured. He is one of the leading authorities in his field. He combines extraordinary expertise with an exceptional ability to communicate with ordinary people. He has held his position for 36 years, earning the admiration of multiple presidents, including George W. Bush, who awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Yeah, I think the key point in that 
paragraph is that Fauci has been there for 36 years. He's a survivor. He knows swamp politics. Perhaps that's been an underestimated aspect of his expertise over the last six months, because as Peter Navarro, the president's point, the president's Defense Production Act point man on the coronavirus task force, as he notes in many of the discussions he's had with uh, Tony Fauci, Fauci's been wrong. We've noted that, too. Navarro writing in the USA Today. He has a good bedside manner with the public, but he's been wrong about everything I've interacted with him on. He fought against the president's decision to take down the flights from China. He was slow to acknowledge the nature of COVID-19, that it that it constituted a pandemic. Navarro writes, while I was working feverishly on behalf of the president in February to help engineer the fastest industrial mobilization of the healthcare sector in our history, Fauci was still telling the public that China virus risk was low. When we were building new mask capacity in record time, Fauci was flip-flopping on the use of masks. So when you ask me whether I listen to Dr. Fauci's advice, writes Navarro, my answer is only with skepticism and caution. Well, our next guest, friend of the show, takes it uh, even a step further than Navarro did and uh, characterizes Tony Fauci as a deep state fraud. He is Angela Cotavia. He is a uh, celebrated academic, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, professor emeritus of international relations at Boston University. Professor Cotavia, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. So, uh, Professor Cotavia, was Trump right to say, hey, we're all on the same team and tamp down any public rhetorical sparring between Navarro and Fauci? Uh, Trump was deeply mistaken uh, because we are not, on the, in fact, on the same team. And, in fact, Navarro is completely correct. Uh, not only has Fauci been wrong, but Fauci has also been insincere. Uh, Fauci is a bright man. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the mistakes that he made were not um, so much mistakes as they were uh, a consequence of uh, misplaced priorities on his part. Uh, so he was uh, first. Let, let me uh, uh, talk about one basic thing. I started my article by saying that I understood that Fauci was a fraud 10 seconds after he had begun speaking. He had, he had been asked a question, uh, were, had the Chinese been forthcoming? Had they been truthful about the coronavirus? And he answered by saying, uh, well, yes, because they had um, uh, been very clear about the, the, the sequence, the entire sequence of the virus. Now, uh, that conveyed the impression that, yes, in fact, the Chinese had been quite, quite forthcoming. In fact, all they had done was convey the genetic uh, character of the virus, which is entirely uh, beside the point that he was asked about. He was asked whether, in fact, the Chinese have been clear about the effects of the coronavirus. Uh, and, uh, in fact, they had been quite deceptive about it uh, in, in several ways. Uh, first, they had said that, that it was not terribly communicable, uh, which uh, allowed the, um, uh, the the travel to continue and, and then the virus to, to spread, and then uh, and then uh, they said that it was really a very terrible thing and had a very high mortality rate, which is entirely wrong. 
uh, and which led uh, lots of countries, including the United States, uh, to do these, these terribly foolish lockdowns. Uh, let's, let's, now, hold, let's, let's hold right there. I want to pick up right there and, and, and get to your perspective and why you think uh, Tony Fauci was deceptive about Chinese deceptions. More with Professor Angelo Cotavia, Senior Fellow at the Claremont Institute, right after this. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with Professor Angelo Cotavia, Senior Fellow at the Claremont Institute, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at Boston University, talking about Tony Fauci and we left off, Professor, you were describing uh, Tony Fauci's uh, uh, parsing of a question about uh, Chinese responsibility and Chinese forthrightness right. at the outset of this and that he was less than that. He was similarly deceptive. And and you talked about how uh, Tony Fauci has different priorities than President Trump. And I wanted you to develop that a bit. Well, the. Uh... <laughs> The priority uh, really has uh, is a thoroughly partisan one. It is it has been, in fact, to get the country into these uh, these terrible, terrible lockdowns, uh, which in fact uh, are not uh, what uh, good epidemiology uh, would uh, would counsel, because such things are are um, effective only when only to prevent uh, contagion. But once contagion has set in, uh, it, um, it, whereas individuals may protect themselves by, by absenting themselves from contact, the entire society cannot. The, 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 uh, the, uh, the epidemic will, must, cannot help but sweep through the society with whatever effects it may have. Uh, but, but but why number is one. number one? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, oh. well look, the, the entire idea of quarantine uh, developed in in the um, in the Middle Ages made a great deal of sense. Uh, you just don't want the uh, the the, um, uh, the epidemic to get into the population. But once it is in the population. Uh, simply um, uh, locking down everybody, uh, preventing contact, uh, all that does is slow the spread. It doesn't stop the spread. It doesn't cure anything. I'm, I'm still not getting to the point of Tony Fauci. You, you're, you, to me, you're suggesting he acted with malice aforethought. He knew things yes. to be untrue that he said were true. Why would he do that? Look, I, I cannot, I cannot go appear into his soul, okay? But all I know is that number one, he's a very bright man. Number two, he said something he knew that perfectly well was not true. Number three, those things that he that he said were not were not true have been the basis of a disaster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and Am I making myself clear. Well, yeah, but I mean, but you do charge him with being a deep state fraud, and and yes, exactly. Look, what's yes. a fraud? A fraud, uh, Someone who says something that's knowingly look, untrue. Look at, look at the definition. Look at the definition in the dictionary. Mm-hmm. A fraud is is taking valuable 
valuable uh, uh, considerations under false pretenses. He pretended to be telling A. He meant B. And and, 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 by, so, and by so doing, and by so doing, he caused a great deal of harm. But are you suggesting that Fauci is somehow compromised by the Chinese or any other? I, I, I am not. I'm suggesting no such thing. Okay. I'm suggesting. I'm simply saying that that uh, his he found the Chinese deception to be useful for his own deep state political purposes. So you think, so would you say, do you believe him to be sort of be ideological on the topic like uh, some have become, which is to say he he wanted to lock down as the response and this is the way to get to the response, his preferred response? Yes, but I I, I wouldn't use the word ideology. I don't believe that uh, he has any ideology, or at least there's no evidence that he has any, any ideology other than ordinary attachment to the to the um, to the left of the democratic to the democratic party uh he is primarily uh, a, an establishment type and this is what the establishment wanted mm-hmm. so you think no he, no no there's no yeah, yeah. so i mean no, no, he, uh, this is um, among other he has been accused and i think correctly of of being a um very, very close, to put it mildly, with uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, everything he has done has been uh, has had the mark establishment all over it. Uh, this uh, well, sure, he's been there thirty six years, and and exactly, yeah, and and but but here, but the, I guess the question then is thinking about other pandemics we've experienced, including H one N one during the Obama administration. There were similar dire predictions. Right. There were a lot of uh, diagnoses, diagnosed cases. There were a lot of illnesses, a lot of hospitalizations, but we didn't move for lockdown then. Why was lockdown the order exactly. of exactly? Yeah, but why was lockdown the order of the day this time around when he could uh-huh. have pushed it previously and didn't? But he did not right. This time, there is the Trump factor. The entire establishment is doing, is grasping at every straw, doing every single imaginable thing, and then some, to get to to um, to royal the society in the hope that it'll help to get rid of Trump. Mm-hmm. He is Angelo Cotavilla, and it isn't Trump, by the way. I, I, sh- I should uh, I should be clearer. There is a revolt among the American people, and not just among the American people. Europeans uh, are involved as well against the kind of governance that uh, the establishment has foisted on the rest of us for the past half century. Uh, things have continued to to go downward. Uh, the uh, the level of, uh, uh, of competence, the level of honesty, uh, the level have, have, have dropped. The level of contempt uh, by the governors for the governed has increased. People have been have get, been getting sick of this, and there's been a, all over the, the Western world there's this revolt, and all over the Western world. The establishment is reacting in exactly the same way, hmm. uh, pulling out every stop, trying to to uh, knock down whomever um, tries to stand up for 
ordinary folks. From Brexit to case, it, yeah, from Brexit to the yellow vest to the deplorables. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting yeah. thought. Yeah, he, no, no, no. That's that's what's going on. He is Angelo Cotavia, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, professor emeritus of international relations at Boston University. Professor Cotavia, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, the president of the American Institute for Economic Research on the show, Edward Stringham, uh, talking about and uh, looking at, because he did the analysis, uh, the uh, comparison of those states that had a light touch when it came to lockdowns and those states that had a heavy hand. And uh, what uh, Stringham found is that uh, the lockdown states had an overall unemployment rate of 13.2%, while more open states were under 8%. Uh, also, the lockdown state had nearly four times the death rate of the light-to-touch states. Uh, now, that's changing a little bit in the last uh, three weeks since uh, he produced that study. Not, a, not so much that Andrew Cuomo should be on a victory tour like he is, but that's where we're at. Oh, by the way, since uh, the New York Times is doing their best to... Mau Mau, the Sweden approach, uh, I wanted to reference you to another piece, another friend of the show, John Miltimore, about a comparison between New York and Sweden that was done. And he notes that it's interesting the New York Times has seized upon Sweden as a cautionary tale rather than, say, Belgium, which uh, is comparable in terms of population. Uh, And Belgium suffered far worse uh, impacts from the virus than Sweden has. Uh, he writes, does Miltimore, the reason Sweden is a quote-unquote cautionary tale, according to the New York Times, and Belgium is not, is because Belgium followed the script. Early in the pandemic, Belgian officials closed all non-essential business, enforced strict social distancing rules. All non-emergency workers were told to stay home. Shopping was limited to a single family member. Individuals could leave for medical reasons or to walk a pet, so long as social distancing was maintained. And uh, those protocols were strictly enforced. Belgian police using drones in parks and fines for anyone breaking social distancing rules. So you can't criticize Belgium. You got to go to Sweden because they didn't follow the rules. They didn't stick to the orthodoxy. Uh, there was a, a look-see by uh, Yanan Weiss, a entrepreneur and founder of RallyPoint, uh, using data from the COVID tracking project compared New York to Sweden. The first thing one notices about the comparison is that Sweden was able to flatten the curve, so to speak. Remember, that was the original goal of the lockdown measures, and New York was not. The reason New York failed and Sweden succeeded probably has relatively little to do with the fact that bars and restaurants were open in Sweden or that New York schools were closed while Sweden's were open. As Weiss explains, the difference probably isn't related to lockdowns at all. It probably has much more to do with the fact that New York failed to protect the most at-risk populations, the elderly and the infirm, which we go back to again and again. And I will continue to until and unless there is some reckoning for that decision. Oh, by the way, uh, Miltimore also reminds us that was exactly the recommendation of another uh, wonderful doctor, uh, one of the world's leading epidemiologists before he didn't follow the script. Stanford University's John Ioannidis, that's what he uh, advocated uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. Protect the elderly, protect those in concentrated areas like that are that have vulnerability, like nursing homes and long term care facilities. One of the bottom lines is that we don't know how long social distancing measures and lockdowns can be maintained without major consequences to the economy, society and mental health. Ioannidis wrote in March. 
Unpredictable evolutions may ensue, including financial crisis, unrest, civil strife, war, and a meltdown of social fabric. Protect the vulnerable. And even Sweden acknowledges they recognize that, but they didn't do as good a job as they could have. Something else that uh, distinguishes Sweden from New York, public officials that actually hold themselves accountable, actually are willing to recognize where they could have done better so that the next time they will. This is Dan Brown. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with Libby Emmons, senior editor at the Post Millennial, and um, in reference to school openings and related arguments, uh, Bill Galston, writing in the Wall Street Journal, somebody who is certainly left of center, we talked about a grand bargain in education to get the schools reopened, uh, the idea that uh, you would pay teachers who are not in vulnerable cohorts hazard pay, and you would uh, provide whatever first-dollar health insurance they don't already enjoy. And in exchange for that, they'll get back in the classroom. Uh, our friend Libby Evans over at the Post Millennial argues that, you know, this that's obviously important. It's a predicate to... Uh, uh, the larger conversation about the kind of education that is available when schools are open. How are your children being educated? And now with parents having to be uh, engaged in a battle to get their kids back to school, at least for the great majority of the 51 million uh, parents with kids in public schools in this country, perhaps they should maintain that engagement and take a closer look at the instruction their kids are getting when school is up and running, just as some parents were starting to get a handle on it, even in the last uh, part of the last semester, the spring semester, during uh, the remote learning. For more on this, again, we're pleased to be joined by Libby Emmons. She is a senior editor at the Post Millennial. Libby, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. So um, give us the handle on New York City schools where you're at, because, um, uh, you know, what New York City does, a lot of other big cities follow. And de Blasio is not taking as strident a position, somewhat surprisingly, as the teachers unions in places like L.A. and Chicago are at present with some some form of in-person instruction in the proposal he rolled out earlier in the week. And so where does that stand uh, with New York City between de Blasio and the unions and the parents? Well, for the most part, it's a little bit confusing. So de Blasio has um, come up with this plan where Parents can send kids back to school um, for maybe one or two days a week of education in the classroom, or they can opt out of that and do entirely remote learning. Teachers also have been given, I believe, an option to um, be remote educators or to be back in the classroom. This is supposedly to um, ensure the safety of those teachers that are older than 65. I believe the majority of teachers in New York City are um, under that age. I know that many of the teachers in my son's school are, you know, 30s, 20s, 30s, um, maybe 40s. Uh, so this is sort of this this not plan that has been devised by the city, which leaves so much up for grabs. 
also in this past semester with remote learning, even though we have 1.1 million uh, New York City school students and we have so many public schools and it's such a huge component of our budget and everything else, the way that remote learning was rolled out was different for every school. There wasn't one consistent standard. So earlier in the pandemic, um, there wasn't anything. And then mostly there were phone calls with teachers to like video phone calls with teachers just to check in. A lot of the learning that was being done was basically just a list of assignments that were given uh, without really any instruction for the parents to understand how to teach these lessons or, um, you know, which left me and I'm sure many other parents trying to teach math in a way that we learned it when we were kids, which is not the way that it's taught now for reasons that I also don't understand. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's pretty topsy-turvy. I know that parents that I've talked to, want, a lot of parents I've talked to want their kids to go back to school. Um, and these are parents in my community, mostly minority parents who are interested in making sure that their kids get a decent education. I've talked to a lot of parents who are more affluent, who are mostly concerned with the health and well-being of their kids and saying that they don't want their kids to go back to school. And what I think is really interesting, too, is um, my community, certainly in New York City and the people that I've known um, are, are mostly leftist, are mostly liberal. And these are the same people that have been saying to us for decades that what's most important in this country is educating our youth and making sure that kids have a have a good sense of their potential in their future. Um, what are they, What are we doing now? Are we so cowed with fear that we're willing to sacrifice the education of our kids? It just seems crazy to me. The studies that were piling up that show how damaging uh, excess screen time was to a child's intellectual development, and we would talk about that, and, and now everything is in full reverse because of, of the anxiety of the adults, as you're suggesting. But uh, perhaps the adults should be additionally anxious, as you write, about what's being taught, whether it's uh, on a screen or in a classroom in these schools, and with their newfound engagement at a level perhaps they hadn't been engaged before, now is perhaps a time to uh, be uh, more introspective about all things related to their kids' education. I think that's a great point. And I think that um, here in New York, we see the New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, going out there, participating in protests, advocating for the First Amendment rights of some people and not for others. Uh, what kind of message is this? Like, this is this is what's going on. It's okay for some people to, you know, get what they need, and it's not okay for everybody else. Um, you know, with the church closures and the side by side with the protests, which, you know, as a practicing Catholic, I just find infuriating. You know, it's just crazy. But yeah, there there is also, as you mentioned, Dan, there's a a level of indoctrination going on with a kind of ideology that has skated under the radar for many years, um, which I saw coming up in um, the theater community, and it was certainly present there. It was certainly present in undergrad and grad school. But to see um, the way that anti-racism education is being taught um, in the lower grades, I think it's very divisive to set up some children to be pitied and as victims and to set up other children to be shamed as having as being oppressors. I don't think it does anything worthwhile for kids or their level of self-consciousness or their um, confidence, rather, or their ability to form lasting relationships. When you're constantly looking at people across the divide that society tells you exists between you, how are you supposed to make friendships? How are you supposed to 
you know, build a society from this mess that we've, that we've got at our feet right now. But the curriculum, uh, look, I mean, parents need to be on the lookout for Robin D'Angelo's white fertility making its way into their kids' curriculum. John McWhorter, excellent piece in The Atlantic on this, where he says... That was spectacular. Yeah, John McWhorter. Yeah. I've learned that one of America's favorite advice books, because it's a number one bestseller right now, uh, one of America's favorite advice books of the moment is actually a racist tract. Despite the sincere intentions of its author, the book diminishes black people in the name of dignifying us. And this is a fight that needs to be taken up by parents, black, white and everything and every other color under the rainbow uh, at the K through 12 level, because you're going to see her work. You're going to see Ibram Kendi's work. You're going to see 1619 being shoehorned into your kids education. And as you use the word indoctrination at the outside of the conversation, that's exactly what's happening. And it will happen if parents don't. Uh, if parents aren't cognizant of uh, the curriculum that's being advanced. Yes, I think that that's absolutely right. I Obviously, there's nothing wrong with teaching about racism and teaching the difficult past of American history. That's part of who we are. That's part of what we come from. And there's nothing wrong with that. What is incorrect is teaching kids that there are differences between them based on skin color, you know, it, it, just, it just doesn't make any sense saying that white families always pass racism down to their children, even if they don't know it. It's as though there's nothing you can do about it. It, it, it makes these kids powerless. Um, and it also victimizes, I think, black children. It tells them that, you know, there are all of these things stacked against them that they can never overcome. And I don't know how in any way that's an empowering statement. That seems like something that's remarkably defeatist to me. And infantilizing to assume that kids who face obstacles can't overcome them. Our entire history of American heroes is about kids who face obstacles and overcome them. Every superhero is a poor orphan, you know, well, except for Bruce Wayne. He's a rich orphan. But right. you see my point. Like, everybody is like, that's our story. Our story is I was set up from birth with, you know, nothing. And it was devastating and difficult. And I overcame and I achieved. Bill Clinton talks about he was the... Uh, child of a single mother, you know, Barack Obama faced his difficulties. This is this is what it is to be an American. You face your obstacles. You work hard to overcome them. When you fail, you try again. That's the deal. Uh, overcoming obstacles apparently is racist now. Like, <laughs> it's white supremacy apparently to uh, take charge of your own potential and do something with your life. That's just, that's just such a cruel thing to say to children who are, I mean, America's youth is obviously our future. We've been saying this for so long, and this has for so long been a leftist missive. And I think that the time has come for parents who did not subscribe to this kind of ideology to stand up for their kids, to stand up for the public education system, and to stand up for America's youth and say, you know, this is not who we are. We are a people. We are united. We are together in working toward a beautiful future for a democratic America. Why would we not want that? She is Libby Evans. She is a senior editor at the Post Millennial. Libby, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show and uh, as you know i, I love this uh, recurring column in the wall street journal on their editorial page 
a future view, uh, views from campus where they get uh, written answers to a particular topic from a, a selection of college kids from around the country. Uh, this week's topic, the cancel culture, that's an appropriate one. So uh, smattering of views. And the, the nice thing about this future view column is uh, all of the responses, most of the responses, I should say all, but most, are pretty well-reasoned and well-written, even if I disagree with them. So it's actually uh, providing a free marketplace of ideas on the pages of the Wall Street Journal that are not provided on some of these college campuses, the great irony. Uh, Joseph Moranti, Seton Hall, economics and finance major. There's a clear, clear difference between holding people accountable for what they say and canceling them. Accountability allows for redemption. Canceling constitutes a hatred-fueled public shaming that aims to ruin a person's life. It ignores moral development, especially when the offending comment was made years ago. To give equal weight to statements people make when they're young and those they make as adults is absurd. Differences in opinions over time are often a sign of growth, something laudable. The uh, problem with cancel culture is that it expects perfection, as they define it, of course, I would add. But I think that's what he's getting to. One mistake 20 years ago can be seized on to destroy a man's livelihood, regardless of whether he expresses genuine remorse. People let their rage guide them when, if they had reflected, they would realize they're usually every bit as fallible as the person they are condemning. That's a pretty thoughtful couple of paragraphs from that Seton Hall undergrad, don't you think? Uh, let's uh, try another. Catherine Quinn, Syracuse, public relations major. Uh, opposing view. While my instinct is to support free speech, that right shouldn't extend to hate speech or signaling out marginalized communities. Opinions are one thing. It's entirely different to use abusive or threatening language that expresses prejudice on the basis of race, sex, gender, religion, etc. Language has long been an oppressive force used to disparage marginalized groups. The diction Americans have used to speak about minority groups often has a negative connotation. For example, using the word oriental to describe people from East Asia relegates their existence to that of an object, like an oriental-style rug. Mm. It is bewildering to Catherine Quinn from Syracuse that prominent figures from YouTube stars and children's book authors to corporate executives are upset when the public disagrees loudly with their bigoted and prejudicial statements. How can you voice your problematic thoughts in the public arena, then be angry when you face a public trial and social death? Well, I think, uh, you know, that's fine, Catherine. You express yourself all you want. You've got some definitional issues. I think it's pretty straightforward. You know, marginalized communities, who's in, who's out, what constitutes abusive or threatening language, what constitutes language that expressed prejudice. And uh, to answer your question, although I suspect it's a rhetorical one, how can you voice your problematic thoughts and then be angry when you face a public trial and social death? Perhaps there's a element of proportionality that is to be discussed, as Joseph Moranti, your uh, cohort from Seton Hall, would argue, I suspect, is that uh, a punishment commensurate with the quote-unquote crime. Mm. But anyway, it's interesting. Another uh, perspective, Sarah Shaman from University of Pennsylvania, Poli Sci. Cancel culture is a social phenomenon that ostracizes people who commit socially unacceptable actions. Oh, and by the way, as defined by who, you know, there are questions associated and, and sort of demanded of some of these categorical statements. But anyway, uh, she goes on to point out a certain hypocrisy. The form of this form of social justice, in quotes, functions in the same way as the carceral state. Ooh, big word. You know, the prison state she's referencing the uh, carceral state that uh, many have come to rebuke. 
But too often the same people who call for defunding the police and putting the money toward restorative justice seem to experience little cognitive dissonance when destroying the lives of their peers through social pressure. It's odd. For crimes, they want rehabilitation. But for social offenses, they want pure retribution and incapacitation. For both types of offenses, we must work toward restorative and educational measures rather than punishment. Oh, it's thoughtful. And uh, the uh, lack of the sort of even-handedness of some of those views? Hmm. Well, why don't we go over to uh, NYU. Nearly 2,000 people calling for the termination of a New York City professor after she fell asleep, uh, after she fell asleep during anti-racist meeting held on Zoom, allegedly. This is, uh, I, I should say NYU, um, NYC, the school is Marymount Manhattan College. 2,000 people calling for the termination of a professor uh, in the, uh, the college's uh, musical theater department. She serves as the coordinator. Uh, the uh, woman is named Patricia Simon, a theater arts associate professor, and as I said, coordinator for musical theater. She has been accused, according to the petitioners, of uh, having or failing to have anti-racist views. She also uh, is, is accused of enabling the racist and sizest actions and words of the vocal coaches under her jurisdiction, apparently pent up grievances against this professor. The professor says that uh, she did not fall asleep. She just looked down at uh, uh, looked down or looked away briefly, resting my Zoom weary eyes, she said, and somebody snapped a picture of her. Yes, you know, what the uh, responsible, thoughtful, even-handed person does is try and jackpot their neighbor. And that's the college campus. Uh, the professor providing yet another example of the radical left and the ultra-radical left in in conflict with one another, the students and this professor. She says of the anti-racist propaganda that they were all listening to. I listened with my ears and heart the entire meeting. Oh, brother, not good enough. Uh, one, uh, an, an, another student, in addition to the one circulating the petition against her for being sizest, said that uh, Simon is racist and fatphobic and a toxic professor that should have been removed from Marymount Manhattan College a very long time ago. And this is a particularly poignant reaction. Ethan Wong, she told me that I, being Asian, wouldn't be successful as an actor if I didn't have an Asian song in my book. She also bullies the students into not speaking up when they're having issues. So, I, I'm sorry. Um, so she played identity politics, like the identity politics you all play, and you don't like it? Completely blind. Completely blind. Like a fish that doesn't know they're in water. Ethan Wong and so many of these students at these liberal arts colleges. So there's, there's what's actually happening on campus. And then there's probably some of the people, many of the undergrads who would otherwise, who otherwise may be silent on campus, um, who are featured on the pages of the Wall Street Journal in this uh, Future View column, that are actually quite thoughtful, uh, quite textured in their analysis of these uh, social trends and complicated uh, moral and uh, policy issues. 
And then there's how it actually plays out on college campuses where a small fraction of the campus population can form the Jacobin mob and impose their will with no adults there to stop them. The good, that's the bad news. The good news is there are some bystanders that in, in their age cohort that see that for what it is and uh, will be, it seems, resistant to participate. This is Dan The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show, and uh, congratulations on the fact as part of the next round of stimulus slash disaster relief slash subsidies uh, that uh, they hope to pass. They hope to cajole Republicans in the Senate into supporting, putting pressure on the, the president to sign. Uh, includes uh, expanding Medicaid, putting more federal dollars into Medicaid for the states. And uh, this, of course, is a predicate for their Medicare for all, which actually would be Medicaid for all were it to come to pass. And it's an important distinction because what's lost in the conversation about Medicaid so often, as it was during the Medicaid expansions at the state level under Obamacare, is that Medicaid is the worst form of health care that people receive. And so what you have is uh, people that are on the lower socioeconomic end of the spectrum that access Medicaid to get health care services receiving the worst health care. And this is somehow marketed as compassion. For more on the topic in the context of the pandemic and the politicians' response on the health care piece of it, pleased to be joined by Sally Pipes, President and CEO, Thomas W. Smith Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Pacific Research Institute, author of False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. Sally, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And something that needs to be explained to the American people. Uh, yeah, so um, you had a piece at RealClearHealth.com that uh, provided some detail to uh, to this and and uh, surveyed some research into it to find out just how bad the outcomes were for those who were dependent on Medicaid. Well, exactly. And, you know, Medicaid on July 31st, along with Medicare, will be celebrating their 55th birthday. Of course, these programs um, came into being under President Lyndon Johnson and his great society and really um, proved to be, uh, in particular, Medicaid uh, to be a disaster, and you mentioned the Heroes Act, and they want to take um, the, they want to take 450 billion dollars out of Medicare to add 200 billion to Medicaid to expand uh, the outlays to encourage more states to take Medicaid. And we have today 37 states. Oklahoma just passed the Medicaid expansion. I was very surprised, along with D.C. And so, you know, if you have to really look at you know the outcomes from people on Medicaid. First of all, one in three new Medicaid-eligible people can't find a doctor because the Medicaid reimbursement rates for docs are, are um, 40% below what they get paid for treating private patients. So, of course, it's no wonder that one in three cannot uh, find a doctor. But we've got some really good um, research coming out of um, several journals. The Journal of Healthcare shows that children covered by Medicaid who are asthma sufferers, have much longer hospital stays and worse outcomes than those with private insurance. If you look at uh, the American Journal of Public Health, they looked into 
um, colon cancer, which is one of the very um, high um, incidences of, of cancer. And if it's found in the early stages through colonoscopies, um, the survival rate for five, in five years is about 90, 90%. But under Medicaid, the patients with um, had much higher mortality rates um, than those people with private coverage. And, of course, in Kentucky, the archives of internal medicine show that survival rates for breast, lung, and prostate cancer were much lower than those with private coverage. And we know that um, if you um, detect uh, breast cancer uh, very early on, you have stage one, um, the survival rate five years out is 99%. So it's very um, sad. The American people don't understand this huge um, talk about expanding Medicaid. It's not going to be helpful to, to uh, their health. Uh, Medicaid uh, turns out to be a program that uh, is designed not to provide quality health care to indigent people. I mean, it's been bastardized beyond its original mission of serving indigent children and uh, pregnant women and the developmentally disabled to, uh, to, to, to be, to, I mean, at least the attempt has been made to make it a middle class entitlement to create more dependency and a more reliable constituency. That's really what uh, these great society programs have been constructed to service, isn't it? Well, absolutely, and I, I think it's really, you know, you mentioned my book, False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. During a debate, um, um, Joe Biden said, well, he didn't support Medicare for All. He supported building on Obamacare um, and bringing in a public option, which would be a government insurance plan to compete against private insurers. And all researchers know that the public option would be priced lower than the um, than, right. than private plans. And so they would, be, they would be a stepping stone approach to Medicare for All. So this whole Medicaid thing is... Um, you know, it's even worse than, than Medicare. As we mentioned, the reimbursement rates to docs are lower and the survival rates for people who are on it. Um, but, you know, it's a whole push today, Dan, to, you know, get America to become an entitlement society where government provides everything. And I grew up in Canada under single payer, and I came to the U.S. One of the reasons was to get away from single payer health care. I've been fighting it for years. And yet the American people, the mainstream media keeps saying these programs, you know, are going to be in your best interest, particularly during the pandemic. And the exact opposite is true. Uh, when we come back with Sally Pipes, I want to continue this discussion and, and uh, really uh, there's a, a study you referenced that really, I think, punctuates the problem here and, and how we measure things incorrectly. And we're doing so in the pandemic as well. So this is illustrative. More with Sally Pipes, president, CEO, and Thomas W. Smith fellow in healthcare policy at the Pacific Research Institute, author of False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. We'll be back with more right after this. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with Sally Pipe. She's the president and CEO, Thomas W. Smith Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Pacific Research Institute and author of False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. And uh, Sally, you reference in this uh, piece that we've been discussing, you wrote, uh, this a study in the New England Journal of Medicine from a few years back that really, to me, uh, underscores the fundamental problem we see playing out in all different public policy sectors, including all things associated with the pandemic, which is what is sold as being uh, outcome focused 
just becomes in practice input focused. And so the measure for Medicaid for all, uh, Medicare for all, the measure for expanding Medicaid is we have to cover the uninsured. We have to cover the uninsured. And then there's no interest in how well you actually provide positive outcomes for those people that you say this program is intended to serve. You were detailing it before the break, how bad the outcomes are for Medicaid patients across a range of illnesses as compared to those with private insurance. This New England Journal of Medicine study is just remarkable. Uh, uninsured patients in Oregon, a study, of un- a study of Medicaid enrollees versus uninsured patients in Oregon, Medicaid coverage generated no significant improvement in measured physical health outcomes. So <laughs> we're spending money to produce uh, the same or worse results than spending no money, leaving people uninsured and using the emergency room as their provider of first resort. Well, exactly. And that study in Oregon is, is very, very important because, as you say, there was no significant improvement in measured out- physical outcomes for people on Medicaid compared to people who were uninsured. And if you think back to 2010 when President Obama was pushing the Affordable Care Act, which now, of course, the Dems have passed um, House um, Bill 1425, which would be the Patient patient Protection and Affordable um, Care Enhancement Act. So, you know, they want to, you know, they want to build on all of this. But the the whole idea of the Affordable Care Act was to get people from people, lower income people from using the emergency room. And so they could sign on to the exchanges or they could sign up for Medicaid if they earned 138 percent below the federal poverty level. But, of course, those people um, didn't sign up. And because the, the plans on the exchanges for people who aren't Medicaid eligible are too expensive, the premiums are too high, the deductibles are too high. But on the on the on the Medicaid side, 138 percent below about 17,000 for an individual. These people, you know, are finding that they're going back to the emergency room because, as I said earlier, they can't get a doctor and the outcomes are not good. So here we are talking, you know, in in the House about expanding a program that isn't working. And um, this was the whole idea of, of, of the Affordable Care Act was to provide good coverage for everyone. The number of uninsured in this country, you hear 27 million, but a lot of those people are eligible for exchange plans, exchange plans with a subsidy. About 85% of people who sign on to the exchange are eligible for a subsidy from the federal government. There's, there are only about um, 5 or 6 million people who you know, don't qualify for the subsidy and are uninsured. And so this, is, this whole thing of expanding Medicaid, and in particular Senator Sanders pushing Joe Biden now to move to Medicare for All or Medicaid for All, um, it's going to be a disaster. Well, and it's been a disaster for state budgets, and it's just it's just amazing to me. Uh, it's I mean it's the and I know in the state of Illinois where I live, it is the single largest general revenue fund expenditure. It's soon to be passed by pensions, but right now more than K through twelve education is Medicaid, and that's a federal and state shared program, as you know. And it's still the number one general revenue fund budget item. We we went from one in five Illinoisans that are Medicaid eligible in. Uh, pre-Obamacare to tracking to one in three eligible post-Obamacare. And you're you're describing a system accurately because it plays out in Chicago where uh, doctors and hospitals won't accept Medicaid patients because not only are the reimbursement rates too low, it takes forever for the state to pay them. It's just not worth it. So you, you have reduced quality of care. As you say, the Medicaid recipients don't like it. The providers don't like it. We're spending untold billions and billions of dollars at the state level, every state, every year, 
<laughs> to, to worsen the condition for the target population. It is the most remarkable thing. Well, exactly. And in California, where I live, um, the Medicaid program is called Medi-Cal. One in three, um, as you say, just like in, in Chicago, um, one in three people are now on, on Medi-Cal, and they're finding it difficult. As I say, more the emergency room use is up. 13 million out of 39 million Californians are on, on this program that, that is proving to be a disaster, and yet the unions and the progressives are, are pushing it. Last, um, in 2018, the fraud and waste in the Medicaid program exceeded $75 billion. I mean, these are programs that are just waiting for, for fraud. People who, you know, are above the 138% of the federal poverty level are actually getting um, getting Medicaid coverage, even oh, if, it, oh, if, yeah. if it's good. Or, or people who are in this country illegally, or people who live in different states. I mean, we we started to do a redetermination of the Medicaid rolls, but that's a, that is politically charged. You don't want to do a redetermination of the Medicaid rolls to eliminate the people who are ineligible, because those are all potential constituents for the big government set. And so the fact that somebody from Wisconsin was accessing Illinois' Medicaid system, no problem. The fact that somebody in this country illegally is accessing the Medicaid system, no problem. And and so there's you know, that says something when you're not even interested in doing the easy things that would root out the the the, the fraud, as you're describing, and uh, provide more resources to actually help those in need. Right. Exactly. And, you know, we we just um, you know, Bernie Sanders, of course, you know, continues to say health care is a right. And now uh, presumptive Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden is coming out to say health care is a human right. He's, he's getting his education from from Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders said, of course, we should be covering illegals, um, you know, under our health care system. Well, you know, we work hard. People like you and like me, we work very hard. We pay our taxes. And why should we have to pay even more through these programs like Medicare and Medicaid uh, to fund illegal immigrants? It's, it's just not it's not fair. But this is the whole progressive agenda, entitlement America, and um, we, we need to government. Remember Hillary's book, It Takes a Village? Well, that village is government, and, and they believe that the village, the village is the only – the government is the only organization that can take care of everybody. And it means bringing everyone down to a level – that isn't going to be popular in America. But when you get these programs, as you know, very, very hard uh, to get rid of them. It's time for the villagers to revolt. Uh, she is yes. Sally Pipes, president and CEO and Thomas W. Smith fellow in healthcare policy at the Pacific Research Institute and author of False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. Sally, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. Take care. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back. Yesterday we played uh, some of the clips from uh, Damani Felder, who's the founder of the Wright Brothers, this uh, popular YouTube channel. Uh, we played uh, his sort of first-person reporting from a restaurant in Dallas where he was having a meal, and uh, Black Lives Matter protesters showed up, started chanting, and that chanting led to more provocative actions that ultimately uh, generated a response from the police and descended into vandalism as uh, Damani Felder commentated on while it was happening and filmed. Because they could not behave and handle themselves appropriately. Now they're throwing stuff. 
This is this is the anarchy that they want. This is what they continue to do. Listen to it. Now we're breaking windows. I just wanted to share that with y'all because this literally just developed right behind me. And y'all have a right to see what the real agenda is. Because right here, this is people of all races, all nationalities out here having a good time. And these people came out here and they created a scene. They've created this chaos. That's what they want. And now they're out, they've ruined this evening, essentially. Because they cannot express themselves like actual adults. The key phrase there yesterday, uh, as I described yesterday, the key phrase, this is what they want. And uh, I suggested, uh, boy, that sets up nicely for a little bit of a compare-contrast campaign from President Trump and others. This is what they want. What do you want? Or is this what you want? And there are other examples of this that pop up every day that prevent the choice before the American people on November 3rd. Let me give you another example from uh, my hometown of Chicago. This is Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, who uh, has a pension for doing a Rodrigo Duterte impersonation when talking to Chicagoans, who she clearly regards as not her constituents, but her subjects. Some of you have joked that I'm like the mom uh, who will tear in the car around when you're acting up. No, friends, it's actually worse. I won't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out and I'm going to make you walk home. That's who I am. I was talking about uh, possibly uh, going back to earlier phases in the reopening per an increase in COVID-19 cases. So you don't do what she says. She's not the mom who's going to just turn the car around and take you home. She's going to stop the car, turn off the car, kick you out, make you walk home. I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm lost in the metaphor. What specifically does that mean? So what specifically are you going to do? Translate that for us, Madam Mayor. You know, this is an attitude that is pervasive, mostly in big cities, uh, mostly by Democrat politicians, scolding their constituents, who they don't regard as constituents, as I said, threatening them, really. It's just a remarkable way to talk to people from the position of an elected representative. Does that sound like somebody who wants a relationship of mutual respect that uh, is going to treat people as adults and expect that they maintain some personal responsibility as adults? I don't think so. It's uh, somebody, who, again, who treats constituents like subjects. And you know why she gets away with it and so many other politicians around the country get away with it? Because too many of their constituents, Lori Lightfoot and other politicians I'm sure you're thinking of, too many of their constituents act the part of the subject. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.